This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Cavalry Audio. I'm Carolyn Osorio, and this is my new podcast, The Murder Chronicles. You're listening to episode 21, The Night Stalker. The ranch-style home in Whittier, California, a suburb of Los Angeles, was silent, just as the killer intended. He'd been watching for hours, like the thief in the night that he was. He observed his quarry from the shadows, awaiting the witching hour. When the Sandman had come and gone, his prey drifted into sleep. Believing they were safe and sound in their own homes, that's when the Night Stalker would strike. This killer loved burglaries, loved them. The pleasure was twofold. The stolen possessions were fenced to feed his addiction to the devil's dandruff, cocaine. But the victims, the victims, the fear, the pain in their eyes had become a part of the ritual. It was what he wanted all along, to feast on it, to gorge on it. But first, he had to neutralize the threats, just like his cousin Mike had taught him. Then he would be free to rape, torture, dehumanize and murder as he saw fit because he was an agent of Satan and that meant there was no guilt or remorse he could do whatever he wanted without consequences the night stalker cloaked in the darkness finds his way inside either through an unlocked door or open window he wears gloves because even agents of evil can leave all too human fingerprints. He doesn't need night vision goggles. And the year's 1985, so it's not like he could just order those online for next day delivery. But it wouldn't matter. This killer's senses are preternatural. The homes that he's chosen are at random, like the home of Vincent and Maxine Zazara. It was around 2 a.m. when he finds Vincent on the couch in a den, fast asleep. Vincent doesn't even see it coming, a gunshot wound to the head. Maxine, on the other hand, she's in the bedroom, and she was asleep. But now, the Night Stalker is on her. He beats her, binds her wrists, commanding that she tell him where the valuables are, his breath smelling like roadkill with a mouth full of rotting teeth. This is really happening, but it feels like a nightmare. But Maxine's awake, and she sees that he turns his back on her as he tosses the bedroom, looking for stuff to steal, giving Maxine just enough time to loosen those bindings, and she grabs for the shotgun underneath the bed. And Maxine, with the courage of a lioness, takes aim at the intruder and pulls the trigger. What Maxine doesn't know is that the gun isn't loaded. The killer looks at Maxine, the upheld shotgun, the fact that he could have just been blown away. And his rage is instant and ferocious. How dare she try to kill him? And also, 
He knows. If there had been bullets in that gun, he'd be dead. Within seconds, he's over to Maxine and shoots her point blank, killing her instantly. He goes into the kitchen, grabs a spoon, and digs out Maxine's eyes. With a knife, he carves an upside down cross into her chest. He then tries to have sex with Maxine's body, but isn't able to perform. The Night Stalker's final act was to place Maxine's eyes into a jewelry box and flees into the night like a specter. He said that if you take the eyes of someone, you have their soul. And that, I think, was in the back of his head. But I said, what happened to that woman's eyes? And he wouldn't tell me. But I later found out that he mailed the eyes to his, his father. This episode details the crimes of the Night Stalker, who was later identified as Richard Ramirez, a serial kidnapper, burglar, rapist, and murderer who terrorized the city of Los Angeles and San Francisco from the spring of 1985 until his arrest on August 31st, 1985. But the Night Stalker's killing spree actually began before that, in 1984. While we're going through the case, I was contacted by LAPD and they said, hey, we have a murder on June the 24th of 1984, a single isolated murder, and we have fingerprints and we'd like to collaborate with you. And I said, well, just hold on to your case. But once we positively identify him, we'll check prints. It's the same guy, you know, we'll hammer him because they had investigated their case. We'd investigated our cases. We still didn't know who we were looking for. Once we did get Richard in custody, we matched the prints. And yes, in fact, he did. That was victim Jenny Bincow that he had murdered on June the 24th of 84. But there weren't a bunch of murders that we were aware of from them between 84 and when I got it in 85. That's Gil Carrillo. Hi, my name is uh, Gil Carrillo, Lieutenant Retired from Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, or Homicide Lieutenant Retired from Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Before we dive into the Night Stalker case, there's some things that you should know about Detective Gil Carrillo, who worked the case alongside his partner, Frank Salerno. So how long were you in law enforcement before you retired, and was it all with the Sheriff's Office? It was all with the Sheriff's Office. I was a swearing with them October 1st, 1971, and retired November 30th of 2009, 2009. So I gave wow. him 38 years. 26 of them were assigned to Homicide Bureau. The ironic thing is before going into public service, Gill was headed on a different path until a defining moment in his life. The age of 17, a member of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department took me home and told my parents, sign for me to get off the streets or he'll end up dead in prison. I was not a bright young scholar going to medical school. Gil's parents listened to this deputy who had brought their son home and told them to wake up. And at 17, Gil's parents signed for him to go into the military. Ended up in Vietnam, saw an awful lot of combat. Then it turned my whole life around. I, I matured, and I knew I was mature because when I looked at my high school transcripts, I obviously thought D stood for damn good. I was embarrassed. And they let me into college at uh, Rio Hondo uh, because I was a Vietnam veteran, essentially. And I got in, and I turned all that around and started becoming 
an A student. I had three goals in life. One was to uh, become a cop and give back what that cop gave to me. He gave me my life. Was he like a community policeman and he was in your neighborhood and it was that's how it was back then? Or what what made well, him? I, I don't know that they had community policing back then. I don't know that they really had it. Uh, he was a local local cop. He knew us. Once I became a cop, I understand that he was doing good police work. And there were some that just, uh, you'd see him coming and you'd run because they were tough. They demanded respect in different ways where this guy was friendly. I mean, he got the same thing done. He's, every time he got us, he put us on the car, patted us down, made sure we had no weapons, and which was good police work. He was safe, but he treated us good. And so he talked my parents... Actually, what he did was he was always telling us, try to stay out of trouble, get here. You know, you guys are going to go to jail. And if there's anything I can ever do to help you. Well, I was failing in English and he actually helped me uh, write a paper. I said, hey, teacher said, if I write a term paper, she'll give me a D and which would allow me to pass. So I said, so I want to write one on cops. So he helped me write it. And that's when he told my parents, sign me to get off the streets here, end up dead in prison. He's no good. During his career in law enforcement, Gil met up with his mentor, and it would be an emotional reunion. And I was back in the booking area one day. I had taken some guy back to his cell, so I came out through the booking cage, and I saw the gentleman that helped me, Al Arias. Al looked at me, and he says, oh, no, what happened? I heard you had done good. And I said, Al, I did. I had a little longer hair. I was playing. I lifted up my shirt, and I showed him my badge. Immediately, there were tears of joy on both parts. He uh, started telling man, I knew this kid. We go way back. I remember when he was trying to steal hubcaps, you know, messing with cars and he went in and now look at him. I'm so proud of you. We hugged. I ran into him one other time at a local hardware store. My wife was with me and Al was with his wife. I said, Al, I want you to meet my wife. And he said, oh, Mrs. Creel, you don't understand. Your husband and I go way back. She says, no, I do. And I want to thank you because he's told me all about you. And then everybody was crying. So You're making me cry right now. Are it you, it are still you? bothers me uh, just remembering what, he's, what he meant to me. We'll be back after a quick break. Detective Carrillo's story is interesting, especially as we consider serial killers and the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. Why do they do what they do? What made Richard Ramirez, a little boy who loved to dance with the music on the radio, become a Satan-worshipping serial killer? The psychiatrist Michael H. Stone described Richard Ramirez as a made psychopath rather than a born psychopath. And by asking the question of what made Richard Ramirez do what he did doesn't mitigate his horrendous deeds. Even Detective Carrillo, who prides himself on focusing not on Ramirez's history, but on catching him, in the end, was interested in his history. Uh, I learned from my college professor, Robert Morneau. I give him all the credit that gave me the knowledge to work the Night Stalker case in particular. I took two semesters of advanced criminal investigations pertaining to sex crimes. Required more work than any class I've ever done. He was the best instructor I've ever had. He taught me understanding. And in life, if you understand why people do the things they do, I understand why Richard was kidnapping little kids and why he was killing adults. I understand. I don't condone. And that's the big difference. You don't condone what, what he's doing, but you don't understand. And if I understand, then it makes it a lot easier to talk to people. 
And, and what so did you understand about Richard Ramirez and why he was doing what he was doing based on this training that that you'd gotten? What what sexually was motivated? He was a sexual sexually motivated individual. So it was gratifying to him to have sex. He liked seeing people in fear. If uh, and and Morneau taught us, you know, you get a gun and put it. If I put a gun right in your face, you're going to be scared to death. Well, he thrived on that. He loved seeing people in fear. It wasn't his intent to kill you. He wanted to see you scared. If you acquiesced and did whatever he said, you survived. If you put up a fight and didn't pay attention, then he would kill you. And that's the way it was. In the case of Richard Ramirez, the seeds of evil were planted and took root in his childhood. Richard Ramirez was born in El Paso, Texas in 1960. He was the youngest of five siblings. According to Philip Carlo, a journalist and best-selling biographer who would go on to write The Night Stalker, the life and crimes of Richard Ramirez, the true story of America's most feared serial killer. Carlo would spend years researching this book, which included extensively interviewing Richard Ramirez and his family. And he found that the through line of the Ramirez family bloodline is violence and childhood trauma repeating itself. Richard Ramirez came from a long line of violent men who took their rage out on their loved ones. Richard Ramirez's father, Julian, had been abused by his own father and grandfather. So Julian married Mercedes, and they had five children, and Richard was the baby of the family. And by the time that he was born, his siblings were all in school, which meant he spent a lot of time as a young child on his own. And Richard's father, Julian, like his own father and grandfather before him, struggled with fits of rage and violence that he took out on his wife and children. Julian and Mercedes were devoted Catholics, and they raised their children to be God-fearing. And it's interesting to note that before Richard Ramirez was five years old, he had two extremely serious head injuries. In 1963, when Richard was just three years old, he was climbing up a dresser. He'd pulled the drawers out to use it like a ladder, stepping up over each one. But when he got to the top, his weight caused an imbalance, and so this heavy dresser came crashing down on top of him knocking him unconscious and also splitting his head open. He had a deep gash across his forehead. Richard was taken to the hospital where he received 30 stitches. Two years later, Richard would receive another head injury and it happened so innocently. He was just five years old and he was going to the park with his brother to look for his older sister. And he sees her on the swing and joyfully runs towards her, you know, like little kids do. He loved his sister and they were very close. And in his desire to reach her, he didn't realize that the swing was actively in motion and she couldn't stop. And he collided into it and was knocked out cold. So that's two concussions by the age of five. I want to make it clear that having concussions doesn't make you a serial killer. But when you ask the question as to why, there is a connection that's been made between violence and brain trauma. Between 1979 and 1983, famed FBI profiler Robert Ressler interviewed 36 convicted serial murderers inside U.S. prisons. Now, this was the first study that focused on data related to serial killers. This was actually before the term serial killer was in common parlance. The FBI profilers collected this data about serial killers, and they were looking for psychological and behavioral characteristics and the motives for their crimes. 
their personal histories. Ressler would later write a book, Whoever Fights Monsters, about his findings. And he would write, quote, All the murderers, every single one, were subjected to serious emotional abuse during their childhoods. His findings also revealed that 40% of the serial killers interviewed reported being physically beaten and abused when they were children, and 70% reported witnessing or been a part of a sexually stressful event as a child. Now, another study of the profiles of many serial killers show that many of them had suffered severe head injuries to the frontal lobe when they were children. So damage to the temporal lobe has been known to cause hypersexuality, sexual aggression, and just plain out aggression. Separate from the head injuries, when Richard Ramirez was six years old, he was diagnosed with epilepsy after having a grand mal seizure in school. And Richard's home life continued to be filled with violence and anger, so much so that he would often steal away to a cemetery to escape his father's rage. Uh, Richard was a victim of child abuse. According to him, his dad used to beat him, beat him with a hose sometimes, and he'd get away. And the only place he could go to was the local uh, cemetery where it was comforting to him. And he got uh, that would he'd go and relax over there. And that's what he did. So I don't know what, what he was he born like that. He asked me at one point in time, he said, hey, Gil, why do you think I am the way I am? And I told him, Rich, if I had the answer to that, I'd be a doctor making a lot more money than I am as a cop. I don't know. And I told him, nor do I care, because my job isn't to find out what got you like this. My job is to gather the evidence presented to the district attorney and then help prosecute you, put you in prison. It, I don't, uh, a lot of people have quite, well, didn't you do this? Did you, you know, back in his personal background, you know, we've got, I got murders to work. You know, I'm not, this wasn't a case study for me. Richard's older cousin, Mike, would only add to his growing fascination with death and violence. Richard Ramirez was 12 in 1972 when his cousin Miguel, or Mike, came back from Vietnam. Mike had enlisted into the army and was sent to the Vietnam War as a Green Beret. There, he brutalized and murdered Vietnamese women when he was overseas. When Mike came home, he was a decorated soldier and he would boast of his crimes to Richard. He documented these crimes with Polaroid photos of the scores of women he had abducted, raped, and murdered. These Polaroids were Mike's most prized possessions. In fact, as he was brutalizing his victims, he would stop to pose with them, which included pictures of Mike holding up their severed heads after he decapitated them. A young Richard Ramirez was fascinated by the photos. He memorized every detail and later would masturbate to these horrendous images that he'd kept in his head. It was during this time that Richard Ramirez began developing a macabre fascination in Satanism and the occult. He was beginning to reject his strict Catholic upbringing. Despite the 11-year age difference, Richard hung out with Mike more and more. He soaked up his cousin's stories of rape, torture, and murder, how he'd shrunk the heads of his victims and kept them as souvenirs. Mike reveled in his receptive audience, feeling like Richard was a kindred spirit, began to treat him as a young protege, showing him how to move in the dark, silently stalking victims with a knife at the ready, making sure that Richard knew how to plunge it into a person's neck and twist just so for an instant kill. 
This is audio of Richard Ramirez from an interview with author Philip Carlo. Was your cousin an influence on you? Yes, I look up to him. Because when you're at that age, superheroes, war heroes are like in comic books, TV. This green, vicious, mean, strong, you know. I didn't mind seeing all that boring violence. It was a turn up, it was exciting. He used to say, there's no thrill like a good kill. <laughs> and uh, feast on bones. We'll be back after a quick break. In 1973, Richard was at his cousin's apartment playing pool. Mike's wife, Jessie, returns home. She's carrying an armload of groceries. She took one look at 13-year-old Richard and just was fed up. Jessie started going off on Mike, saying that he needed to get a job and quit hanging out with Richard. Mike responded by getting up and going to the refrigerator. He grabbed a gun that he'd stashed inside of the freezer. He went up to Jesse and he said, if you don't stop talking, I'm going to kill you. Jesse didn't believe him and said something to the effect of, right. She walked up to him and sort of dared him to pull the trigger. Right there and then, Mike shot his wife in the face, killing her on the spot in front of Richard. According to Richard, he had killed his wife in front of him and he used to talk to Richard about how he used to get around, so he used dark clothing and the 22 or 25 small caliber gun were guns of choice because they were quieter and they did more damage internally by bouncing around a lot more. Mike told Richard to go home and not tell anyone about what he'd just seen, and Richard obeyed. He went home, he didn't tell anyone. And even later that night, when his family got a call and they were told the news that Mike had murdered his wife, Richard didn't tell anyone that he'd been there, that he'd witnessed it. A few days later, Richard was asked to go with his father to Mike and Jesse's apartment. Mike had requested some of his belongings be brought to the jail. And when Richard and Julian went back to the apartment, Jesse's body had been removed, but the crime scene hadn't been cleaned up. The blood spatter was still there, and pools of blood had congealed. Instead of recoiling at the gory scene, 13-year-old Richard, as he had with the Polaroid photos, had been excited by it. It, it struck me that she was dead, you know, because I knew her pretty good. That had a very profound effect on me when I saw it. Later, he would describe how he felt. Quote, That day I went back to the apartment. It was like some kind of mystical experience. It was all quiet and still in there. You could smell the dried blood. Particles of dust just seemed to hover in the air. I looked at the place where Jesse had fallen and died, and I got this kind of tingly feeling. It was the strangest thing. Then my father told me to look in her pocketbook for this jewelry my cousin wanted, and I dumped Jesse's pocketbook on the bed and looked through her things. It gave me the weirdest feeling. I mean, I knew her. And these were her things. And she was dead, murdered, gone. And I was touching her things. It made me feel in contact with her. Richard Ramirez would later say that witnessing Jesse's murder was a defining moment in his young life. But it was more than that. Not only had Mike not been held accountable for the rape, torture, and murder of all of those women in Vietnam, Back home, when it came to the murder of his wife, he didn't do much time. Instead of being locked up for first-degree murder, Mike was found not guilty by reason of insanity. The shooting was attributed to post-traumatic stress disorder from his service in Vietnam. Ultimately, 
Mike would only serve a few years in a state hospital. After Jesse's murder, Richard started skipping school and smoking a lot of weed, and life at the Ramirez family home continued to be full of emotional landmines fueled by his father's rage. But Richard's parents were worried about him. They wanted to get him back on track, and so they sent him to Los Angeles in the summer of 1973 to stay with his older brother. They didn't know that Richard's brother in L.A. had become addicted to heroin and had been burglarizing homes to pay for his addiction. That summer, Richard's brother took him under his wing and taught him how to rob homes in the night, when people were sleeping and vulnerable. After the summer was over and Richard was back home in Texas, he continued to fantasize about raping and killing. The images in Mike's Polaroid pictures that Richard had memorized and fantasized about weren't enough. He needed something real. And he continued to ramp up. He began peeping in windows, regularly got high on LSD, and would go out into the desert and kill animals for pleasure. At 15, he dropped out of high school and got a job as a maintenance worker at a Holiday Inn. Richard was able to get his hands on a master key to all of the rooms, which meant he had access to the guests and their valuables. Richard would break into the rooms while the guests were sleeping, stealing their stuff. And whenever he had the chance, he would peep into the windows of unsuspecting guests, spying on women. One night, he saw an opportunity to take it to the next level. He was peering into the window of a woman's room, and he saw that she was nearly nude. And he watched her go into the bathroom. Using his secreted master key, he gained entry, hiding in the closet. When she came out, he pounced, tying her up. But suddenly, he was interrupted. The door opened. It was the woman's husband. He was on Richard in an instant and gave him a beating. The police were called and Richard was arrested. But he was quick to make up a story, saying that the woman had invited him into her room and that he thought that she was single. When her jealous husband showed up and beat him to a pulp, Richard said that the couple had basically made the whole thing up because they were embarrassed that the wife was cheating and wanted to save face. Ultimately, those charges against Richard would be dropped because the out-of-town couple didn't want to come back to Texas to testify. It was another crime he'd gotten away with. When Richard was 18, he went back to Los Angeles in 1978, and he moved in with his brother again. And it was here that Richard fell in love with cocaine. He fed his addiction by breaking into homes and stealing with his brother, as he had done before. But it was only a few months after he returned to L.A. that Richard started having a falling out with his brother, and so he moved out. He began living a nomadic lifestyle, staying at cheap hotels, burglarizing people's homes, stealing cars, and sleeping in them. Police would find out much later that Richard had broken into a woman's apartment after she turned him down for sex. He held her hostage and sexually assaulted her for hours. After the assault, the woman didn't go to the police. She'd been too traumatized. And Richard became more and more emboldened. His lust for violence continued to grow, as did his interest in Satanism. During this time, he consumed the Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey, founder of the Church of Satan. The book's teaching stated that there's no such thing as sin or guilt. Armed with his new faith, Richard was ready to give up his Catholicism. He was a Satanist, 
And as such, he believed he could walk the streets of L.A. knowing that he was protected by Satan on Earth, free to inflict as much pain as possible without consequences, because he was on a mission of Satan. Richard Ramirez had flown under the radar for a long time. Cocaine to the brain made him insane, he says. He was getting away with everything. He didn't have an intensive criminal history. He had no felony convictions at all. He had an arrest uh, here in L.A. County by LAPD for a stolen vehicle, and he had a citation for driving a motorcycle without a license. And those he are both misdemeanors? Texas. The citation is only an infraction. It's not even a misdemeanor. The He was convicted. He was arrested for a felony, the Grand Theft Auto, but he was not convicted of it. They reduced it to a misdemeanor. Therefore, those prints didn't make it into the automated system. And in Texas, he didn't have a huge rap sheet. Nothing. He felt invincible. The serial killers and, and most killers in general have a dead conscience. No morals, no scruples. Some of them don't even care whether they live or die themselves. They are just walking dead. A serial killer is caught up in a, in a frenzy and uh, by the time it's over and done with, you'll reflect back on it and wish it had lasted longer. And by 1984, Richard was ready to become the worst serial killer in history. Many people believe the Night Stalker's killing spree began in March of 1985. But like so many of his other crimes, the murder of a nine-year-old little girl went under the radar. It is believed that Richard Ramirez killed for the first time in April of 1984. But at the time, no one connected the case to the devil-worshipping drifter from Texas. On April 10, 1984, Richard was walking outside of his low-rent motel in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. He noticed a little nine-year-old girl. Her name was Mei Lung, and she was by herself. It's believed that he lured her into the basement of her apartment building. And there, he bound, beat, and raped May before suffocating her to death. Police couldn't believe their eyes when they found May hanging from a water pipe, partially nude with her own blouse tied around her neck and the spigot. An officer on the scene would describe her body as being posed as if Christ on the cross. But... Without much physical evidence, the case soon went cold. The murder investigation of May Lung wouldn't be closed until 2009, when Richard Ramirez's DNA was matched to a sample that had been left at the crime scene. If the murder of May Lung was his first kill, it was clear that he was making a statement. Murdering this innocent young girl so horribly and violently, and that he justified his actions in the name of Satan. But at the time of May's murder, nearly a year before his bloody rampage would start in March of 1985, how could police even get this twisted message that the Night Stalker was making a statement? Or maybe it was a warning of what was to come. And the many sleepless nights of a terrified city. Would the Night Stalker strike again? Authorities confirming their worst fears warned residents to be prepared. Lock your doors. Lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Would California's so-called Night Stalker ever be found? A man who believed that there was no such thing as sin or guilt. A man who walked the streets of Los Angeles with his head held high, thinking that he was protected by Satan. But one detective, Gil Carrillo, would begin putting the pieces together in a pattern that at first only he could see. 
I, I could see things that others couldn't, and it was made more difficult. I was the youngest guy in the bureau, and there were those that would sit there and say I was a young Mexican trying to make a name for myself, and it wasn't true. You know, I could see things, and I knew what was, I knew in my heart what was going on, and I knew in my mind. Then it was just trying to convince others, and I wasn't angry at them for not believing in me because nobody in criminal history has ever done this before. And so now all of a sudden, this young guy that hasn't been working murders as long as the old guys, you know, is trying to change the world, and, and nobody's done it since. So I, it was easy not to believe me. Next time on The Murder Chronicles, you'll hear part two of The Night Stalker, where we'll dive into the killing spree of the devil-worshipping drifter Richard Ramirez. Before I let you go, make sure to check out the bonus episode for part one of The Night Stalker. After every episode, my producer, Brandon Morgan, and I go over the case in more detail. And if you're interested in ad-free options, check out Cavalry Plus on Apple Podcasts. And as always... Thank you for listening. The Murder Chronicles is a Cavalry audio production recorded live in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Our executive producers are Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. Josh Windish edited and mixed this episode. Music by Soundstripe. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. Thanks for listening. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.